are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put morning, over your life Renaissance. for your commitment to gather in person with other believers and make more disciples for the fame of blessed Jesus. With the opportunity this morning Peace to, be with um, you. Bring the Lord's word to us. And so, if you have been with Renaissance over the last few weeks, you'll know that we just finished a series in which it was titled, His Story is Our Story. And if you've heard, maybe as as Pastor Rob has announced or or heard in passing, that uh, our next sermon series is going to be the book of Ephesians. However, we find ourselves today kind of sandwiched between the two of them uh, in this uh, sermon series limbo, if you would. And so, when Rob approached me and uh, offered the opportunity to preach, he asked me, what was something that the Lord was teaching me? What was something that, that God had been informing me about, shaping my heart over, and, and, and what is something that I could then share with you guys? Well, I, I went back to the scripture. I spent time in prayer. I went back through my, my journal to figure out what that very thing was. And a few weeks prior to that question, uh, some of the leadership at Renaissance had attended a Harbor Network conference, which is simply a, a, a conference for churches, a part of that network. And during this time, there was a, a session, a teaching, in which one of the speakers, his main point was that the gospel is three things. The gospel is good, the gospel is true, and the gospel is beautiful. And when, when listening to these things, I, I found that the first two seemed very apparent. I know that the, the gospel is good. That we have eternal life through Christ. And I, I know that it is true and I, I believe it in my heart. But it was the third point that really kind of struck a chord with me. When he said the gospel was beautiful. And I, I know that the gospel was beautiful. But what I found was that anytime that I was sharing the gospel or, or speaking about it, beautiful was not one of the words that I was using frequently. And so it, it had me wondering, why am I not seeing the gospel equally as beautiful as I am good and true. What is it that has gone wrong? What has gone awry that I wasn't seeing God in his plan for us clearly and rightly? And so the thing is, nothing had changed about God or the gospel. There was, there was nothing that has happened that has changed that reality. For various reasons, I just was not seeing it the same. It could have been sin in my own life. It could have been stress, exhaustion, pain, sorrow, lies of Satan, lies of this world. All I knew that, all I knew was that my perspective was simply off. And I was reminded of this idea a few weeks ago when I was in the mountains. Not Mount Washington, but the, the mountains of Tennessee. I was uh, on a family vacation. And I was in the mountains, and my room was one of the rooms that overlooked the mountain range. And so waking up, we arrived at night, and so my my view wasn't very clear. So waking up, I walk towards the window, and I just look outside and see this beautiful, majestic mountain range. It it seemed ever-expanding. And I was just, I was in, and it was an amazement. I was in awe of the, the beauty of this thing. 
And so then we all talk about that day of how beautiful the mountains are. And then that day passes, and then the next day I wake up, and I, I approach that very same window. But what I find is that heavy fog had moved in. And that the mountains that I was looking at were far less clear. I could just see a, a few of the peaks maybe uh, poking through the fog, or I could just see a few of the trees. And my amazement decreased. I wasn't quite in as much awe. And so I left the room, and then the next day I, I once again approached this window and I, to find that the temperature had dropped and that the, the window was kind of frozen and fogged over, and so I really couldn't see anything. And so without hesitation, I just decided to go downstairs and grab my normal cup of coffee. But what I'm trying to get across is that nothing about the mountains changed. The beauty and majesty of that range, nothing about it changed. It was simply for, for various reasons my perspective had become skewed. And because my perspective had become skewed, I found it to be less beautiful, even though it was not. And I think the point that I'm making about this story is that this very same thing happens to us. It happens to us with God. It happens to us with our worship. You see, we are a forgetful people. We have this thing called the Bible, which reminds us of that, because over thousands of years we've been seeing how forgetful we are. And because of this forgetfulness, our devotion, our worship, our awe, it ebbs and it flows. It slowly diminishes when life is tough and feels like it gets better when, when life seems to be going more smoothly. But what we need to understand is that the God that we worshiped, whenever we're at the top of that spiritual mountain and life is just at its best, is the very same God that we worship we're in the bottom of the spiritual valley. And I, I think that one of the reasons or one of the ways that our, our perspective, our views can become skewed is, is sometimes we try to silo God. Sometimes we think that today I need the shepherd more than I do the judge. And the issue with this thought pattern or this philosophy is that God cannot be separated from himself. Nor does him being a judge make him any less of a shepherd. And the, this is a very relevant idea during this time of the year. During Christmas time, it's a, it's a wonderful time in which we are reminded of the incarnation of Christ. We see movies. We, we, we participate in nativity scenes. We see lights outside of, of the nativity. It, it's everywhere that reminds us of how, how beautiful, sweet baby Jesus was. And this is something to be celebrated but what I want to propose to you is how much sweeter might Jesus be if we also took into consideration the Father that had to send him? If we also take into consideration the Spirit that connects us to him and the Spirit that connects us to one another. And so this idea is where we arrive at our main point for today. After what feels like the world's longest intro, I guess. <laughs> so our main point for today is who we worship directs how we worship. Who we worship directs how we worship. Now, when I say worship, our minds typically go towards what just happened over the last 30 minutes when we're singing songs and raising our hands, and this certainly is a, a form of worship that is pleasing to the Lord. 
but it is not all-encompassing of what worship is. Essentially, we're always worshiping something. See, when we give, like Pastor Rob was saying, it it is an act of worship. When we meet with others during community group and discuss the gospel, it is an act of worship. Our lives, the entirety of it, are an outward expression of the worship within our hearts. And when I was thinking through this main point, there was one passage that really, really stuck out, that really felt fitting towards this idea, and that was the Great Commission. Now, many of you may know what the Great Commission is, and some of you may not, and there certainly is no shame if you don't. But after the resurrection of Jesus, he returns to his disciples, and he gives them a bit of a charge, some, some final instruction as he is going to be leaving them soon. And so specifically, we're going to be in verses 18 and 20 of Matthew 28 out of the Great Commission. And it reads this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So verse 19 is primarily where we will focus today, and even more specifically the latter half of the verse. And if you're feeling like maybe you're having some sort of deja vu, uh, it's because actually just a month ago, Pastor Rob was teaching out of this passage. But today I really want to hone in on something that, that Pastor Rob was talking about, which is going to be our main point. You see, most of us, we probably understand what it means to, to make disciples, especially if you've listened to our podcast, available on all streaming platforms. <laughs> and if you, you're a believer who has been baptized, then you probably understand what it means to baptize others. But what I want to ask you is, do we really know who it is we're baptizing into the name of? We see it here that we are baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, But do we really know what that means? See, growing up in a heavily Catholic area in Louisiana, similar to to Pittsburgh, that that, the the collection of those words meant one one of two things. It was either some words that you kind of murmured towards the end of a prayer, kind of signifying the end of it, or it was the three main ingredients that you would put in most of your dishes. And obviously, today we are talking about something very different than those two things. You see, in the, in the Christian faith, we believe in the Trinity. In its simplest form, we believe in a singular God that has eternally existed as three persons. And I will preface with this before we kind of get into uh, the, the main portion of, of the sermon today, is that if you're expecting to leave here having all your questions answered about the Trinity, I may disappoint you. There are libraries full of the complexity and the, the, the majesty of how it all works, and I just don't have time to talk about all those things today. But what I I do hope that we walk away understanding is that our view of God, our our view of God that is presented in Scripture, I hope that that aids us in a better understanding of God, in a better understanding of God that leads to a more robust worship of Him. And we're going to be doing that today through our three points which are the relationship within the Trinity, our relationship with Him, and lastly, our response. 
So before we really get into the relationship with, in the Trinity, I would, thought it would be helpful to maybe lay some groundwork. I want to offer up a, a few truths of the Christian faith specifically pertaining to the Trinity, so that as we approach the same text today, we all come from a common understanding of the triune God. And so the first thing that we're gonna, I'm going to offer, and that I assume we can agree on, is that God is eternal. And we see this all throughout Scripture, but specifically in Revelation 22:13, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we know that God is eternal, and in his internal state, we also know that he is unchanging. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And we were also reminded of another truth a few weeks ago when Pastor Andrew explained to us uh, kind of the, the workings of the Trinity. He explained that God is singular but also triune in nature. Father, Son, Spirit, singular but plural, all equally divine but diverse in role and person in the Godhead. Now there are far too many truths to affirm and, and lies to dismantle, but I hope that our, our anchor today and our anchor really throughout the rest of our lives is Scripture. If I say something that is not of Scripture, well then you can discard that. And so that leads us into our first point, the relationship within the Trinity. And we will start with the Father. One of the roles of the Father, or attributes, if you would, pertains to his supremacy within the Godhead. And I know that I just kind of threw a big idea at you. And that word supremacy is probably one, we know that it's one, that has kind of been hijacked by this world to have some sort of evil implication. But I would ask you to cast aside any predisposition and allow the truth of Scripture to speak for itself. And so I think the best way to do that is if we turn to one of the passages that, that very much exemplifies this principle. It's the Lord's Prayer. And the first portion of that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus, the Son of the Father, who is, who is equally God, through the help of the Holy Spirit, is praying to the Father that it would be his kingdom that would come, that it would be his will that is done. And what I love about Jesus, and that one thing that we can certainly take away from this, is that Jesus is not doing this in a begrudging way. Jesus is not slow to move his feet with his prayer, but Jesus has a, a deep desire for this to take place. And not only that, but Jesus has a deep desire, but is passing this on to his disciples, and also passing it along through, through the word of God to all of us. And we also see this headship in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And so when I say that the Father is, has supremacy, what, I, what I'm simply trying to articulate is that all the glory and all the honor 
is ultimately directed at him. The work of the Spirit and the work of the Son both bring honor and glory to the Father. And so in this, I hope that you're not hearing that the Lord is, is great, that the Father is greater in worth, or that he is any more God than the Son and the Spirit. No, but they're, they're equal in a perfect, balanced way. And I understand that this can be a difficult concept for us to comprehend, this idea of, of supremacy but equal. But rather than us trying to create logical holes in how this, this can't make sense, I would encourage us and implore you, church, that we would set our eyes simply on the beauty of it. See the Son and the Spirit in a holy, foreign way to us submit themselves to the Father in love. And for some of us to comprehend this, it, it, might, cha- it might take a bit of a change of heart or a change of perspective. Because one thing about humans, if you weren't familiar, is that submission is not something we really do well. We have a tendency to, to look at authority with hesitancy at best. For example, my boss is Pastor Rob. And I love Rob. And I, I believe and know in my heart that Rob, he wants what's best for me as, a, as an employee. He wants what's best for me as a, as a brother, as a friend. But even in believing that, in times of sin and weakness, I've found myself saying, I could have done that better. He's in charge of me, but I probably could have done that better. Or saying, I probably could have said that better. Maybe I should have been the one up there. You see, we all have an authority problem. We all have a jealousy problem. But the wonderful, beautiful truth is that there is no jealousy within the Trinity. You see, there is peace and harmony where most of us would just find chaos. Now, if we, if we look at the Father exclusively as this sort of supreme leader or head of the table, we might wonder, well, how in the world is this Father supposed to be loving? How is this Father supposed to be caring if he's some sort of this tyrannical ruler? But if that's the case, then we're missing what his primary role is. That even in his supremacy, he is a Father. He is a father who loved his son for all of eternity. He's a father who loves us. He's a father over all of creation, from the mountains all the way to us tiny humans. You see, the the supremacy of the father does not change his loving nature, but rather his loving nature can be found in his supremacy. And that leads us to our, our, our bit of our, our second descriptor of the Father. The Father is the grand architect. He is the author of all. We know that the, the Father is the conductor of eternity. The Son and the Spirit are very much present and serving and active in this. And they, they participate in moving forth His will. But we know it is the Father who orchestrates these things. And this is made clear in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, the, thought, the Father, he sets all things in place for his glory. And his glory 
includes uniting all things in both heaven and earth to him. And I know this, I'm kind of wrapping up this section. It might feel like a short point, but I, I want to return to it later as we discuss our relationship to the Lord. So for now, we'll go ahead and move on to the Son. The first attribute of the Son of Christ that we will look at is his submission to the Father, specifically in his earthly mission. And then we'll also look at his submission in all of eternity. You see, the Jesus that we most commonly think of is the one who took on flesh and blood, is the one who was born in the manger, is the one who was crucified on the cross. But we read in in John 3.16 that the Son was sent by the Father with purpose to this earth. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn him, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Jesus, in a way that probably seems impossible to us, willingly submits himself to the point of death. He willingly not only submits himself to the point of death, but willingly submits himself to a life of persecution. But through all of this, his purpose and his devotion remain submitting to the Father and directing all glory and honor to him, not only through deed and action, but also through word. We see of this in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, Jesus, in all of his glory on earth, in all of his popularity for all the amazing miracles that he did, and all the glory that he, he rightfully received in his healings, and the casting out of demons, the resurrections, in all of that glory, his utmost desire was then to bring it to the Father. And another beautiful example of this is found in, in John 4. This is the passage where Jesus had just had a conversation with the Samaritan woman, which for many reasons in and itself is a, is a wonderful example of, of Christ's love because for many reasons of ethnic diversity and culture at that time, they should have never really even crossed paths. But he, he lovingly spoke with this woman in a mercy-filled interaction. And after this interaction and after Jesus had sent her on her way, this is the conversation that took place between him and his disciples. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Church, we know food to be our, our life source. We know food to be the, the energy that we need to survive. And for that, it was accomplishing the will of the Father for Jesus. I know for myself, I can barely miss a meal without getting hungry and hangry and complaining. And yet Jesus 
he says that all he needs and his food is the will of the Father. And he devotes his energy towards that. And though we often think of Jesus as being fully God, or fully human and fully God, we can also forget that he was fully Son. You see, for all of eternity before the incarnation and for all of eternity afterward, he was a Son. And this takes us to our our second attribute of the Son, which is his submission to the Father eternally. And some theologians would would claim this idea that he is submissive through all eternity as some sort of power structure that, that would be opposite of the equality that I spoke of. But Bruce Ware, who is not a cousin of mine, um, offers a wonderful counterpoint. And I, I think that is a, a really strong uh, place for us to be today when he says this. He said, Would it not stand to reason that God creates the world he fashioned in a way that reflects these eternal structures? And would it not make sense then that the authority, submission structures in marriage and in church leadership are meant to be reflections of the authority and submission in relation to the persons of the Godhead? You see, Jesus was not any less or any more God when he condescended. He remained equal. He remained equal to the Father and equal to the Spirit. And his submission also remained consistent throughout. His obedience. He was obedient pre-incarnation by accepting the will of the Father for the sake of his glory. And we know that that after Christ returns, that he will glorify the Father even more by bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. And so lastly, that brings us to the third figure in, in the Godhead, the Spirit. And this is often one that is probably overlooked or, or not discussed. And it it's probably has to do with the mysterious nature of it all. We can't really wrap, my, wrap our my minds around or comprehend how some sort of the Spirit of God lives within us and connects us to one another and connects us to God. But what I would hope is that regardless of our comprehension, we would know that the Spirit, that He is no less God than the Father or the Son. And so what are, the, what are the purposes of the Spirit? What are the characteristics of Him? Well, I would offer that primarily He carries out the work of the Father, and He also has the purposes of the glorification of the Son. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that this, this Spirit is this agent that helps carry out the Father's will. We see Him present in all of creation, hovering above the waters. We see Him in the Old Testament as He as he comes upon judges and kings and warriors, we see as he, as he fills prophets and gives them the ability to share the truth of God with others. We also know that the Spirit was with the Son. He was with Jesus. As made clear in the account of Jesus' baptism, that he came down, that the Spirit empowers the Son in his earthly ministry, which ultimately, as I've said over and over again, and I hope that, that we can understand was the Son and the Spirit, together they helped carry out the plan of redemption that the Father had crafted for us. And we further see this in Acts, chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. He says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so in addition to carrying out the work of the Father, the Spirit also leads to the glorification of the Son. In John 16, 12 through 14, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, that being Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, both through the life of Jesus and through the continued work on people of, of the continued work that we are a part of today on earth, through the work of the Spirit, Jesus is glorified. And when the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. And that leads us into our second main point for today, is our relationship with Him, our relationship with the Trinity. And so I'm, I'm hoping at this point this sermon hasn't felt like some sort of impersonal lesson, that we're just talking about some big figure in the sky that, that doesn't really pertain to us except for when we, when we die and he dictates where we go. But rather, I hope that this really microscopic view that we've had of the Lord today, this microscopic view of the Trinity, its distinct roles and attributes, would help help us better understand that we do worship a personal God. And so we arrive at our our favorite question that we love asking, is what about me? How do I fit into all of this now that we we know about the Trinity? What about me? Well, we know that, that God, within God, there is a perfect, immense amount of love between the Father and the Son. And we know that, that God was fully satisfied in himself. And truthfully, he, he had no need for us. We couldn't fill any void that God had or complete him in any way. You see, we worship a God <clears throat> who was complete. He was complete without us, yet in his great love, he decided to make us a part of his story. Church, let us think about that. A God who was complete, a God who created the entire universe, he brought us in. He made us to be one of his own. Richard Sibbs, an old Anglican theologian, puts it this way. The father so enjoyed his fellowship with his son that he wanted the goodness of it spread out and communicated or shared with others. The creation was a free choice born out of nothing but love. This collaborative effort of God to create all of the heavens and the earth and to place us on it is the ultimate expression of love. Love that he has for us. Love that he has for you and me. And for those of you who are familiar with scripture, you know that two individuals really got to experience this undefiled love. That being Adam and Eve. You see, they walked in the garden with God. They were able to experience his presence in a, in a physical way. And I would, I would assume that this garden was just probably the most lush and vibrant garden which would only better depict God's love for us, that he would, he would bless us with something like this. And then, 
Adam and Eve did what they were created to do. They pursued the passions of their hearts. And you might be wondering, well, that seems kind of counter to what I know. They weren't designed to sin, and you would be exactly right in that idea. But I do believe that the Lord has designed us to pursue the passions of our heart. It just so happened that the passions of their heart were replaced by something worse. The passions of their heart were replaced with with jealousy. And because of this, because of their decision to sin, because of their decision to pursue other things of the Lord, our human experience has been forever changed. You see, because of this, the eyes in which we view the Lord are distorted. Sin has affected even our eyes, even our perception. We halfway love the God, love the God who has created us, created everything, with lust in our hearts. We worship a God with song while also cursing him out of the same mouth. You see, we are to pursue the passions of our heart, but our ultimate desire should be to glorify the Father in all that we do. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes this desire that we're called to, sometimes this purpose can maybe feel underwhelming. We're often always looking for more. We're looking for for more contentment, more purpose, more fulfillment. But I would pose the question, why are we discontent pursuing the very same thing that Jesus did? You see, Christ brought glory to his Father in amazing ways like miracle and salvation for those who give their their faith to him, but he also brought glory to the Father in the mundane. He brought glory to the Father while he was being persecuted. You see, Jesus was, was sent as a servant both in life and death. And for those of you who have placed their faith in the life, death, resurrection, and return of Christ, as we read earlier, Ephesians 1 tells us that that the Holy Spirit, it seals us with a promise. That the the Holy Spirit seals us with the promise of the adoption that we have been brought into. The adoption that has been predestined from our Father for the purposes of his will. You see, we were made children by a loving Father who has saved us from our own mess. It's not just that we were removed from our own sin, but he, he takes our sin away from us, but then also continues to call us son and daughter. And not only has Jesus radically changed our world now today, Not only has Jesus and his sacrifice allowed the Holy Spirit to work within us today, but we also know that he is radically going to change the world. In fact, he is going to bring about a new one. He's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. You see, we worship our Father, we worship God, even in our sinful state now, and he is glorified. But church, can we imagine how much more glory God will receive when all of our sins and our doubts are cast away? When every tear is wiped away? When death and sorrow are eradicated? And all the old are put away because God will make all things new? And so until then, even in our imperfect worship, 
even when our prayers feel, feel lifeless and discombobulated, even when our singing feels uninspired, even when our service to others feels like we just can't wait for it to be over, the Spirit, the Spirit mediates on our behalf. You see, in our, in our defiled way of glory, the Spirit works amongst us. And He carries out our praise to the Father through the Son. And this idea takes us to our, our last and somewhat brief point is our response. What is our response to this, to this God? And what is our response to our, our relationship with Him? Well, I would like to return to the original passage I think it's up, it'll be up on the screen of, of the, the Great Commission. You see, if you have not placed your faith in God, then this is not, not quite yet applicable to you. But if you have not placed your faith in God and, and confessed your sins and professed with your mouth and believed with your heart, then that is your response. Our response to this good news from this good and loving Father should be for us to submit ourselves to Him. You see, our response is not just to be a better citizen. Our response is not just to, to try and earn our way into heaven through acts of kindness. It isn't to just live our truths. But my deepest desire for myself and for all of you is that our response to all of this would be to give your life to God. And this is a gift. This isn't, this isn't something we have to pay for. It is something that has already been paid for. This is a gift that is free, free for you to take. And if, and if you have already received that gift, then this, this commission that we've been given, this is our response. We are to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of who? In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, we have been created as image bearers from the Father, brought into the family by the Son, and participate in His will by the work of the Spirit. And church, would this truth direct the way that we worship our God throughout every avenue of our life? 